Welcome to PCTY Talks, a new podcast from the human capital management software provider, Paylocity. I'm your host, Sherry Simpson, and as an HR program manager at Paylocity, I will be navigating our journey together as we explore bite-sized topics around HR thought leadership, compliance, diversity and inclusion, and product knowledge. If you have an idea for a future podcast topic, please drop me a note at pctytalks at paylocity.com. On today's episode, our Director of Government Relations, Corinne Tyrone, and I discuss the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. Thank you, Corinne, again for joining me today. With all of the changes happening right now in the world, and especially in the U.S., there's some interesting legislation that just got passed on March 18th. So President Trump signed into law the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, or H.R. 6201. The law will be in effect in about 15 days, so I wanted to spend some time with you learning more about the law and the parameters on how to apply it to businesses. So maybe we can start with an overview of what your understanding the law is to be. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So uh, first of all, yeah, you're right. This this just passed. It is going to be effective pretty shortly. Um, the way that the law is written is that it will be effective within 15 days of the president's signature, which happened on March 19th, so at latest April 2nd. Um, but that date is going to be determined by the Secretary of Treasury. So we don't know exactly what that date is as of today, March 20th. So As an overview, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act um, does have a lot of provisions that are not related to employers, such as things like um, testing for the virus and a couple of other uh, benefits for American people as we kind of all go through this crisis together. But for our purposes, we're really going to focus on those requirements that are now um, a part of the employment relationship. So, for example, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act includes mandatory employer-provided emergency sick pay as well as emergency paid family leave. So those are really the two big pieces that are going to be impactful to employers. Um, and one thing to note about that is that there will also be a credit a credit provided to employers to reimburse 100% of those qualified sick and sick and leave wages as a credit against their employer social security tax. So um, there's kind of a lot packed into that overview. So why don't we um, dig into whichever topic you would like to begin with? Yeah, let's start with FMLA. So it's being called expanded FMLA. So Mm -hmm. how is it actually being expanded? Okay, so um, that's actually a really a great question. And there's kind of a couple of things at play there. So the first is, Generally speaking, FMLA doesn't apply to you unless you've been with the organization for a certain period of time, and that's 12 months. So this has been expanded such that you only have to be with the organization for 30 days. Anyone who has been with the organization for 30 days or longer is eligible for this emergency paid family leave provision. This also has been expanded such that it applies to every employer with fewer than 500 employees. So generally speaking, FMLA applies if you are greater than 50 employees. Uh, This is anyone fewer than 500. So those employers that generally do not have FMLA apply to them because they're too small are still captured by this new provision. You mentioned that the provision says that an employee has to be there 30 days. Is there an hours worked during that 30 days? No, there isn't. So with extended FMLA and the new requirements for the 500 and under and the 30 days, 
Are there any exceptions that were written in the act? There are a couple of minor exceptions. So for example, if you're working for a healthcare provider or an emergency responder, you may be excluded um, by your employer. However, there is also a, a nuance baked into the law that there is some possibility for smaller organizations, so those that are fewer than 50 employees, to possibly request an ex- exemption for their organization, depending on viability. And I think we can talk about that in a little bit more depth. Um, so those are, as of now, kind of what what are some of the big talking points in terms of ex- exceptions or exemptions? And what if you are going to apply for that exemption? How do you go about doing that? As of today, we don't actually have that information. So the way that the law is written, it provides some latitude to the Secretary of Labor to create an exemption. It more or less just says the Secretary of Labor may create an exemption for businesses smaller than 50 individuals if this enactment of these requirements might jeopardize their long-term viability. So what does that mean exactly? I'm not sure. I don't know if that means that you'll have to go through the process of um, submitting a waiver for each individual employer or or if you won't, because the effective date is, is soon. So practically how we will go through that process, I think is something we still need guidance on. Okay. Let's switch gears and talk about the paid sick leave. I think there's a lot of details around this one. So um, maybe you can give a broad stroke as to how much leave is required under this um, this new act. Sure. Absolutely. So um, how much leave is required? We're generally looking at a two-week period here, and that's 10 days. So um, if you're a full-time employee, that equates to 80 hours of paid sick leave. If you're a part-time employee, there is a uh, look-back calculation to determine your average number of hours over a two-week period. So that look-back calculation looks at six the past six months, and in those six months, what is the average number of hours that you work in a two-week period? That is the amount of time that you are entitled to as for paid sick leave. Okay, with the new sick leave provisions, is there qualifications when an employee can actually use this paid sick leave? Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer to this is different than for the emergency paid family leave. So we have to touch on that when we get to that section as well. For paid sick leave, there's actually kind of a laundry list of reasons that you might use it. And they're actually really similar to the reasons that you might use paid sick leave um, at a state level. So as you know, a lot of states have paid sick leave provisions. So in this case, we're talking about things like the employee themselves is sick, and there are a handful of specific detailed items that that, that that looks like. So first is the employee has to be in isolation because of COVID-19, or they're, they've been um, more or less told to self-isolate by their provider because they might have been exposed to COVID-19. So one of those or that they're experiencing symptoms and seeking a diagnosis. So the first few reasons are all related to the employee's own illness. That is one of the um, areas for which an employee might take this paid sick leave. The second is if the employee needs to care for another. So that might look like a couple of different things. So for example, if um, someone that they, someone in their family is experiencing one of those three things that we just talked about. They might they might need to take this paid sick leave if they have to care for their child. So for example, a lot of schools have been closed. Um, so if an employee has to take time off to care for a child because their daycare or their school has been closed, you can take this paid sick leave for that. Um, so those are kind of the main elements of a reason that an employee might need to use this time. And I think I read that the 
pay requirements vary based on those two examples, the employee experiencing and then the employee caring for. So can you describe what those differences are? Yeah, absolutely. So um, that's a really, a really astute observation. Basically, the sick time varies depending on whether you yourself or sick, are sick or whether you are caring for someone else due to, um, due to this coronavirus situation. So in the first case where you are you yourself or are sick, you can take this time and it's limited to um, your, your, you should be paid at your regular rate of pay. So let's kind of start by saying that you should be paid at your regular rate of pay, but there is a limit to the amount of benefit you can receive per day. So for your own illness, that amount of benefit is $511 per day, um, which comes out to $5,110 total, because as I said, it's just 10 possible business days. If you're caring for a family member, the benefit limit is $200 a day or $2,000 in total. Okay. What if an employer is already providing different types of paid leave? So if an employer is already providing paid sick leave, they cannot require that an employee use that paid sick leave first. So the employee is entitled to use this COVID sick time in advance of um, using any accrued sick time that they already have. Now, there is um, a bit of a nuance there as far as the FMLA portion goes. So we can touch on that a little bit um, when we get to that topic. Uh, But as far as paid sick leave goes, the employee is entitled to use it and can't be required to use any accrued time that they have for other purposes instead. Thank you for the information on on the sick time. I do want to go back a little bit to talk about some additional questions under the extended FMLA. You did say that there's specific criteria that would make you eligible for that. Can you go over what those are? Sure, absolutely. So generally speaking, you can take FMLA for your own illness or to care for someone in your family who is ill. In this specific case, the expansion of FMLA is incredibly narrow. It only applies to you if you have to take time off work, you're unable to work or unable to telework because you have to care for a minor child whose school or place of care is closed due to COVID-19. So that is, um, it's, a, it's a lot of time that they're, that they're granting in this. They're giving you uh, two weeks unpaid. Those are your first two weeks, kind of standard as FMLA goes. And then um, the 10 additional weeks are paid, but you can only use that time for that one specific reason. So it sounds like the extension is only related to childcare issues. Correct. Okay. Um, That's not how it was originally written. So you've probably seen and heard some conversation um, about a much broader application of an extension of FMLA. That isn't what actually made it into law. So in the first draft, there had been um, a, a, a much lo- larger list of reasons. It was closer to the paid sick leave, like you're seeking your own diagnosis or you have symptoms or you've been put in isolation or or whatever, a handful of different reasons you might need um, FMLA. But that, that actually didn't make it into the final version of the bill. So in the final version of the bill that is now law, it is only applicable if you are taking care of a child whose school or place of care is closed. And what is the rate of pay for this paid FMLA section? This emergency FMLA is paid at a rate of two-thirds of the employee's regular rate of pay. So it's similar to um, the sick leave that you might take to care for another. I'm not sure if I mentioned that earlier. Uh, If you're taking the sick leave to care for another, the amount of pay is 
two thirds of your regular rate of pay, but capped at the uh, $200 a day. This is also at a rate of two thirds of your regular rate of pay and capped at $200 a day. However, as I mentioned, the time period that you might take it is significantly longer than you would take the paid sick leave. So the total benefit amount that you might receive for this is $10,000 total. And does this extended FMLA offer the same job protection as regular FMLA? Yes, it does. Yeah. So if you're if you're out for this, you still um, would come back to the same or similar position. And how are the payments actually being paid out to employees? That's a great question. And I think that actually is um, one of the things that has gotten a, a little bit of um, attention from employers because employers initially will be fronting the cost of the emergency paid sick leave, um, but they will be reimbursed when they file their tax return. So the way that this is structured is such that, you know, this this money comes out of the employer's pocket, so to speak, initially, but they do get a credit for that when they file their tax return. So it's um, offset against their social security liability. So um, that's kind of one of the things that we're going to kind of remain to be seen in terms of how, how practicable this is for some smaller employers. I believe that's probably why there is that latitude granted for the Secretary of Labor in terms of exempting small employers, because this might be more challenging for a small business to implement than a larger business. So I do have a question that came across my desk that I, I thought I'd like to ask you. So what if I have 500 plus employees right now, but I'm planning to do layoffs in the next few weeks that would put me under the 500 employee marker? How does that apply to me? Does that make me now fall underneath the requirement? You know, how is my headcount being determined in my response to complying with this act? That's a really good question. And I think um, one that we're still, it's one that we're still waiting on guidance for. So just kind of um, at the outset, I want to say level set that we don't know the answer to this today. However, often what we see happen in these types of situations is there's a look back period of, let's say we look at your entire last um, calendar year and based on the average number of employees that you had in that calendar year per month, that would be the the number that we're going to use to determine whether or not you are 500 employees or more. So it remains to be seen. It's possible that the look back period will be such that um, you would not be captured. Um, I don't and I don't know that it will or will not be fluid. Um, so I think that that's one of the things we're looking to get additional information and clarity on. I will say that uh, Paylocity is working really closely through the National Payroll Reporting Consortium to seek that guidance actively. So um, the National Payroll Reporting Consortium is an industry group that is represented by um, a dozen or so of the largest players in this space. And as a collective, when things like this happen, um, lawmakers and regulators seek us out to uh, get guidance on what are the things that we need to implement these changes within our software and to make this as uh, painless as possible for employers and, and to administer this in a way that is, you know, expedient if, if possible. So um, we are asking for guidance on that so that hopefully um, us putting that question out there quickly will mean that we get guidance on that more quickly. So Corinne, I know that you have been working on some additional resources, um, one pagers and stuff for explanation of not only this, but some of the other best practices around coronavirus. Where are those resources shared so that we can make sure our audience has that information? 
Oh, that's such a great question. So there are a couple of places that you could find this. First of all, we are actually in the process of creating a um, coronavirus preparedness kit. It's already out there and accessible, but we are adding information to it all the time. So if you are not a client of ours, you could um, Google it or go through our paylocity.com page and you could find that information there. So there's a summary of the law as well as a pretty robust FAQ document um, just to kind of help answer any questions that you might have um, about the information as it stands today. Uh, the other way that you could find this is if you are a client, you can go through PEAK, which is our um, Paylocity Education and Knowledge module, and you can find all of these uh, all of these resources there as well. Wonderful. And I will go ahead and put a link in our show notes today for anybody who's looking for those resources. Corinne, thanks for taking the time to review this new act with us. I do have an additional question. When it comes to the IRS and some of the tax things that we've been talking about, I have seen some changes that will affect Americans as we go into tax season. Can you share a little bit more about what you knew about that and the impact that it can have? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So um, as you know, we're, we're in a state of emergency right now as a country, and there are certain um, officers of the government who are vested with additional powers when there is an emergency in place. So Secretary Mnuchin does have the ability to extend certain payment and filing deadlines, and he has stated that he and in, he intends to do so. I have not seen official documents that say this as of yet on the IRS side. However, Secretary Mnuchin said it, and generally speaking, you know, you can you can anticipate that that will those official documents will be forthcoming. What he has said he is going to do is extend both the filing deadline and the payment deadline for personal income and business income tax. Generally speaking, those are due on April fifteenth. So your you know you go through the entire tax year of twenty nineteen, and then on April fifteenth of twenty twenty, your filing and your payment are due. He is extending the filing and the payment until July fifteenth. So that's an additional ninety days to get your filings and your payments to IRS with no with no penalty. So that's actually um, a big a big relief of burden that he is extending. Yeah, I read an article that said that he thinks it'll inject $300 billion of temporary liquidity into our economy. So um, it's a yeah. very interesting tactic that we're taking to to help continue that liquidity of, of funds for people. Okay, Corinne, any last thoughts before we sign off for today? Uh, I think we've actually covered everything um, that is federally has federally changed as of today. I do just kind of want to make a note that um, there are a lot of activities continuing in Senate for additional relief for Americans um, during this time. So I think we will continue to see changes. But right now, a lot of it's just conversational. We don't even have bill numbers. So um, I anticipate that you and I will probably be connecting on that soon once something is uh, hammered out. Wonderful. Thanks again for joining me today, Corinne. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me.